Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Uh, this week's episode is with Kirsty Wiebeck, who is a friend of the podcast and an excellent human being on all fronts. We had a discussion, a really interesting discussion. I specifically wanted to talk about an incident that happened with her some weeks ago now that really struck me. Um, so it, this is one of those conversations about something that happened on Twitter, but it ranges beyond that into all sorts of modern discourse and compassion stuff, stuff, chat. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it. I very much enjoyed having it. You should see Kirsty Wibeck's show if you can, if you're at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. I think she's also doing it in a few other places, but look her up online. She's very good. Thank you, everybody, who has come to my run in Adelaide. It has been such, such an interesting um, run for me. The first week with the brand new show was a nightmare. I just had that, you know, and always the first week of a show is, is stressful because you're like, oh, I don't know, you know, I have all these hours of material in my bank that I know work, but I'm going to have to do completely untried stuff. And this time it was worse because... It's an ambitious show. I've got a robot. The whole thing was just so daunting. And I let reviewers in too early, which I just should never do. I should just let reviewers in in Adelaide because it's not a show yet. Uh, it, was, it was really hard, really hard first week of just what am I doing? Have I ever been funny? Will I be able to pack these ideas in? I'm going to quit ev everything. <laughs> but it's now solid like the second week really kicked in and I have I have my audiences to thank everybody who came in the first week thank you so much you helped me so much that is the hardest part of comedy is is the fact that you cannot be good straight out of the gate and um, so I wanted to just say to people who come to my early shows you're very very welcome to come to later shows just email me and I'll let you in for free because in those early shows the audience helps you at least as much as you help the audience if making people laugh can be considered help so that said I will be doing my my show that I am now confident in uh, in Melbourne Sydney Perth London various festivals around the UK and then in Edinburgh, this show, Ethos, is, I don't know if it's my best work, but it's certainly the thing I have worked hardest on in that first week. So uh, I would love to see you there. Um, if you are a Patreon subscriber, you can come with a plus one for free. So you just send me an email, alicerfraser at gmail.com, saying what night you've bought tickets for, and I will put an extra ticket on the door for you. Uh, that should be totally fine. I'm in quite a big venue if it, if you can, if it's like a Friday or a Saturday night that you want to come, uh, if you could email me in advance, that means it's less likely to be sold out. I don't want. Uh, I will, you know, try and put in extra seats if if we are sold out. But uh, there are, you know, various requirements for seating, so I don't want to be put at point non plus if that's possible. Um, that said, everybody who has subscribed on Patreon, everyone who sent me messages, everyone who's tweeted lovely things about the show or just said hello to me. You are really fantastic. You're just great. It makes it possible to do what I do. It makes it possible to do really ridiculously overambitious stuff. And I am so happy. I'm really happy. There's nothing like failure to make you appreciate success uh, when you just can't do something and can't do something and then you can all of a sudden. 
that is the best feeling in the world for me and uh, I appreciate it because you make it possible. So I will stop being um, sappy and let you get on with listening to this podcast, which is with Kirsty Wiebeck. And I'll see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. Yeah. All right, let's turn this on. Um, so who are you and what are you drinking? My name is Kirsty Wiebeck and I am drinking iced green tea. Yes, we're in a we're in a I think the only cafe in Adelaide, maybe in the world, that uh, is not playing music. That's very convenient for our purposes. It's incredibly convenient <laughs> for our purposes. It makes editing much easier, so we can cut out huge chunks of this if you like. Great. Uh, what have you been wrestling with recently? What have I been wrestling with? Um Oh, do you know, I was trying to think about this on my way over, but I can't, off the top of my head, I can't think, I can't think a great deal ab- about any, any major struggles, actually. Um, I'm, I'm in, like, a really sort of happy place at the moment. Um, I think, I mean, this is something that you and I talk about a lot, and I think probably the only thing that is constantly weighing on my mind <laughs> all the time and has been ever since I met you and still is, is I've got this unhealthy obsession with social media and how much I hate it. And it's, that's probably it. Like, other than that, everything's good. What, I mean, what's happened recently that has brought that up for you? Um, okay, so recently, I guess I had my first taste of being on the receiving end of call-out culture. And it was actually really interesting because it was the the most devastating thing it was and I probably in the first instance didn't I definitely didn't deal with it in the correct way I'm doing inverted commas at Alice when I say that in the correct way um but you no, no one knows what the correct way is like there's too many variables well it is this it's an odd thing because it's more and more as this is happening more and more you start to see a protocol and it's sort of ritualistic the way that it's done so that as you say there is a correct way to apologize yeah in inverted commas again there's a correct way there is a correct way but Again, it, it isn't actually about what you've done and so you can't actually fix it. No. And the thing about this so-called correct way of responding is that because it is so formulaic now and because people are wise to the fact that that's what you have to do when you trip up in public, it's, it seems very performative. Yeah. And, and you often wonder how many people um, have actually been called out on something and actually genuinely have reflected and understood what they've done wrong versus have gone, all right, we know I've got to own it and I've got to unequivocally apologise and I've got to say that I'll do better. And like, do you know what I mean? It's like, are there, are there lessons really being learned? or? Well, well, also, it is sort of... Um it's impossible to contextualise what you've done. So, like, if you don't mind me unpacking it slightly... Sure. ..you are, you know, a very outspoken activist, uh, LGBT rights person, and you've kind of put the yards in. Like, you've done a lot of volunteer work, you've done a lot of, like, legit work. Sure. And you got called out for a tweet that was a joke, and it was clearly a joke, it was structured as a joke, it was a flippant joke, and it's clearly meant to be flippant. It's not meant to reflect your full understanding of the world sure 
and I saw some of the hate that was being directed at you. It was hate that was directed at every evil person in the world and you were just the keyhole through which they were pouring this hate. It didn't seem really to have anything to do with you and it had nothing, it was not put into uh, the context of your life. Right, right. It it was was definitely a... uh a very bad joke. Uh, my biggest crime was that, was that it was a bad joke. It was a but, good joke, actually. I laughed. Oh, well, thank you. It was, look, that, the thing about it, and I remember talking to you about this at the time, and thank you, you, <laughs> you were wonderful. Um, the, the, the thing is that, and, and this, is, this is a problem with how people are starting to talk about if political correctness is killing comedy, right? Mm. The, the, the problem is that... It's one thing to be an offensive comedian who is just punching down all the time and tearing minority groups down and being hateful and making people feel terrified about them, uh, uh, terrible about themselves rather. Um, but it's another thing about um, reducing things. Like, uh, like you said to me um, straight off the bat at that time that humour and jokes are reductive. Yep, and they have to be, nature. right? Well, that's what we do. You try to cover every base, you get one star in the advertiser. Right, right. (laughs) I mean, you've got the option of not dealing with difficult topics or touching on difficult topics, which means that you're not covering them in full, or you can cover them in full and it's not funny. It's yes. interesting, but it's not funny. Yeah, it's like it's a TED talk. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's exactly right. Like, you think about the amount of time that we invest in actually going through our jokes and shaving words out of them, right? And that's honestly what I did today for about five hours was I took whole paragraphs out of my new show and turned them into two lines and then had to pad out the rest of the show, right? Because that's the thing is that it just turns into a rant or a... Um, yeah, a TED talk, like like a verbose chunk of information with no humour in it. And that is also the thing with, I mean, this is the magic of comedy is that you can uh, meet people with it who would not be on your side necessarily and you can open up uh, boxes that they would never have opened on their own. You're not going to do that if you are preaching to the converted, if you're only doing jokes that are for your audience that they know and then they get the laughter of recognition and that's nice, that's empowering in a way. If you do a TED Talk, again, nobody is going to access that unless they're already interested in what you have to say. Yeah, So com- sure. comedy, the kind of comedy that I like, falls somewhere in the middle between those two places where you're challenging people, but it's not a lecture. Yes. Because people won't listen to a lecture and they won't come to your show if they know exactly what they're going to get. Yeah, and yeah. And it's that's not what they want. Exactly. So you're not changing minds on either end of that spectrum. But in the sure. middle is this kind of quote-unquote dangerous turf yeah yeah and it and you know it's it it is it's definitely tricky it's um yeah I mean being on on the receiving end of that it's like you you don't you don't get an opportunity to um defend yourself anyway because there's there's way too much information that you'd have to provide to put it in context for an internet stranger and and it would the, sound defensive. It would. And you know what? This is – I'll tell you what I've learned from it, okay? Um, I, was, I was having a particularly bad week when this person pointed out that they found my tweet to um, exclude uh, trans people, right? And if you're coming at it from that angle, um, it did. It was a tweet about cis women who I've dated and not, um, not anyone specific, but it was basically um, my uh, – 
the, Say the joke. No, I can't. It's too embarrassing because I hate the joke. It's a joke. It's a totally fine joke. <laughs> okay. I, I can't remember it verbatim, but look, and look, I, I'll just as a disclaimer for the listeners, I was spitballing, I was throwing ideas out for my new show, mm-hmm. which a lot of us use Twitter for. Yeah. To see what sticks and see what gets a bit of traction on Twitter and then we'll flesh it out yeah. and we might turn it into a joke for the stage. And so I wrote something along the lines in an absolute flurry of rubbish that I threw onto Twitter that day. I wrote something along the lines of um, I'm really glad that I'm gay because I have no idea what to do with a penis. I think it was something like because it means I don't have to deal with penises. Okay, that that, that definitely sounds like my brand. I remember it because I remember <laughs> I remember a funny joke, and that was a funny joke. <laughs> okay, excellent. So I wrote that, and someone look, someone quite harmlessly wrote, "Some women have penises, right?" And I had just had this week where my inbox was full of people coming at me for a million different things. And I had a look at it and I instantly was defensive about it. And to, like, to be, it, was just per, it was a perfect storm. I was worn out. I was completely just worn out by, by society on that day. So I just decided um, – I'd also just witnessed one of my other friends be completely torn down publicly over something else. So I just decided to block them. And basically they realised that I'd blocked them and then they wrote a public post up on Facebook – naming me in my full name and referring to my job as a comedian Mm -hmm. and explaining that a lot of people are fans of mine and that essentially, you know, I've been masquerading as a a trans ally but this is the kind of hyperbole that I'm spouting whilst telling people that I'm, you know, a loud and proud pioneer of the LGBTIQ communities. And it got back to me within seconds. Um, A few different people screenshotted it. And they sent it across to me and they were trying to defend me as well and were, you know, saying that, um, you know, they know me and they're a friend of mine and that, you know, I I wrote a silly joke and, you know, they're sure I didn't mean to conflate genitalia with gender and all of this sort of stuff. And then um, I started getting added to lists of TERFs on Twitter. TERFs being... Trans-exclusionary radical radical feminists, which is like a a terrible thing to be called. Like in... in Particularly in your community. A hundred percent. And it's... Yeah, it's like it is... It's the worst thing that you could be branded as in our communities. And, you know, there's a lot of high-profile people that have been branded that who have literally come out and said trans women aren't women. Yeah. Right? Which is the very definition of what a turf is. So they have earned the title. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, it, it puts you in a basket indiscriminately, not on a spectrum, but in a basket with the kind of people who will throw rotten fruit at somebody who's not passing in the street. Absolutely. And there's no distinction made between you with one word left out of a joke on Twitter and somebody who screams at someone who's using a female bathroom. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the issue was that the, the tweet that I wrote in the first instance was very much about me. I was the subject of the joke and it wouldn't have been a joke if I'd written a line in there ex- explaining that I'd only ever dated cisgendered women. Yeah. You know, and that's what we were talking about, it, about it being reductive, was that, like, sometimes for a joke to be funny and for it to have a quick setup and then a punch... You have to omit 
extra information and just and allow the listener or the reader to bridge that gap themselves or not to even think about it. Yeah. Like not to even think about it. And so because it was about my own experiences, I guess I just took it for granted and I also took for granted my position in the community to just think I had enough goodwill to be able to write something like that without it being looked at as hateful. Yes. And I read this really interesting tweet um, not that long afterwards and it, oh, I wish I could remember who it was. Um, it was a really prolific African-American author and oh, I hope it comes to me by the end of this podcast. Tanahisi Coates? Oh, oh, no, I don't think so. It'll come to me, I think. Um, it, it, this tweet, they tweeted this about a day after all of this happened for me. And I totally own that I didn't handle it great at the time. And I, you know, also wasn't afforded the generosity of strangers thinking that maybe I was having a bad day. I block people all the time for no reason at all. (laughs) I will block people that I don't follow, who don't follow me if I see them being an idiot on someone else's... (laughs) Like I'm just like preemptive attack. I'm yeah. just gonna I don't make want you sure in my this world. person never comes Great. into my world. Great. Like, I love that. So I'm all for the just just aggressively blocking people. Well, I mean, you're the same as me. Like we like we cop heat online. And so I think I think we do get defensive and I think we I, I'm certain I've done that in the past as well, where I've seen somebody behaving badly towards some of my friends who might be in a similar sort of demographic to me, like maybe another female comedian or another queer or whatever it is. And so done the preemptive block as well in case you fall on their radar. And, but we do, we get people – and, you know, having having a public job as well, you get so many people who think they genuinely know you. Yeah. And, and this is the thing um, – I've just I, lately I've just had this flood of of people contacting me and like it's so, I've just got social media fatigue at the moment if I'm honest. So I, I had another instance this week where someone that followed me who oddly enough I'd followed back because I rarely follow back people that don't have some sort of a public profile. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not I'm not doing that. Try and build five hundred thousand followers. So just follow every Tom Dick and Harry thing. Mm. So, I'd, I'd followed this person who's, um, you know, a, a, a Twitter punter. Um, and I wrote a tweet during the week and it said, and again, like my Twitter account is such a mess. Like, it's just silly. It's just for lols. Every now and then I'll put some activism-y kind of thing up there, but it's usually just for lols. And... Um, I wrote a tweet saying, I identify as a self-sourcing pudding. No questions, please. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. Yeah. And it got a little bit of traction. People liked it. There were a few giggles going on. And then this person who had – the reason – I just brought up that I'd followed them back. And the reason that is relevant is, just in case anyone listening doesn't know this – if someone doesn't, if you don't follow each other, people can't DM you. Yep. So you following someone back opens up your DMs to them. Direct messages. Thank you so much. I I'm thought just, I was. <laughs> I'm just assuming that there's people who are listening to podcasts that don't know Twitter slang, but I'm. No, sure that's, that's a great. Very small. No, you're, but I'm explaining stuff as well, but <laughs> just not quite to the nth degree that you're getting us to. We're a very good team. Um, we should run seminars. Yeah, we should. 
Yeah, that'd be so fun. In schools. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'll educate people on call-out culture and why not to be involved in it. Yeah, role-play some bullying scenarios. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so this this person um, went into my DMs and it was all very lovely. It was, they you know, they addressed me in a very kind way and they called me out again on being transphobic with the self-sourcing pudding joke because I said I identify like I'm mocking people who identify as something other than and I was like I was like no no that's not transphobic no it's not it's not transphobic like it's actually language that has been around for a lot like a long time and it wasn't rooted in that at all. Yeah, I think where they were probably coming from is that you see people on the right wing saying, well, what's to stop me identifying as a pot plant? You know, I yeah, sure. Be like pot. And so I can understand why that would ring, uh, ring a bell in them. Yeah, but we but can't... I do think you're responsible when you have a reaction for examining the reaction a little. Yeah. And we also can't relinquish whole chunks of the English language to the right just because they're using it now. Like, we can't go, okay, they're using this phrase in a certain way, so therefore we can't use it in any way anymore. No. I mean, equally, there are, you know, people in their 60s who are like, well, in my day, gay used to just be fun. Why can't we use it for that anymore? It's like, well, you can, man, you can. Uh, but, uh, the, the reaction thing is interesting. I have a friend who was telling me the other day, he was in the lift and a man in the lift in a suit who was wearing a collared shirt with long sleeves did that thing where you thrust out your arm to adjust the fit of your cuff. Yes. And my friend thought he was about to get punched. Okay. Because he's, you know, he's had some traumas in his life. And sure. he just, he had that immediate reaction of like, you know, his, his fist clenched and he brought it halfway up and then he realised in that split second that that was not what it was. Sure. And he took responsibility for... His own reaction in that instance. Yeah. It was understandable that he had the reaction. It was a sudden movement exactly like a punch. Um, but then he doesn't really... He can mention to the guy, you gave me a shock, man. I thought you were going to punch me. But he doesn't really have the right to say, you are not allowed to make that action. Yeah, sure. Like, how dare you adjust your cuff in a lift? The extent of what he can say in that, like, politely or at least, you know, civilly or in a way that's going to teach the guy a lesson is like, holy shit, you gave me a start. I thought you were going to punch me. That was a real rapid, like, cuff adjustment, mate. Like, that's sure. the level to which you can really go if you want to be useful and not a stranger. <laughs> like, sure. When I say stranger, I was going to say weirdo, but I don't like the term weirdo, so. Yeah, Sure. Yeah, no, that's that's really true. And I think that's all we can do in any situation. I mean, even if we go back to the previous example of when I first was on the receiving end of it, I, within 24 hours, like, I 100% knew that I pr- probably should have tackled it head on, mm. right? It was just that I think why we do react that way and why we do automatically block is because we're used to seeing the mob just jump on and you don't get a chance to properly defend yourself and... You don't get a chance to provide that context. And we actually... So the original person who went on to write the Facebook message and to sort of tell people that I wasn't who I'd been claiming to be, which was big, especially since my career was attached to it, um, it didn't... 
no, none of this went as far as I, in my imagination, thought that it was going to go. Yeah. Because you just... It is the kind of thing that can end up on BuzzFeed or Junkie or one of... Totally. Those. And you don't, you don't know. And, you, and this person wrote on their Facebook post, I'm not making this public because I don't want it to go viral. So it was a closed thing to their friends list um, and, you, you know, there a lot of people in the queer community. I mean, I noticed my social media following dropped off, you know, a, a good number of people from their friend list, like, just no questions asked, just unfollowed me, like, following me for years and knowing me as a polite and respectful comedian who punches up or not at all. Um, all goes out the window based on one very minor sort of thing, which is the sad reality of call-out culture, I think. But we ended up... I I invited them to email me and um, we exchanged a couple of emails and ended it very um, amicably and I don't think, and I might be wrong, but as far as I know... From the insider information, I don't think they ever let everyone know that we'd smoothed it out and we'd resolved it and that I'd unequivocally apologised. I think they just left it at that post up about what a terrible person I am. And, I mean, you know, that's I've been told that they never smoothed it out publicly and, and said that we'd been through that process. And then certainly up until as recently as like three weeks ago, I was still being added to turf lists. Yeah. And it's like, it's done. It was a tiny little thing. I apologise for mishandling it and blocking rather than addressing it at the time. And also, you know, to put my full name and the fact that I'm a comedian and that I'm well-respected and all of that's a farce is like a massive thing to put out into the public about somebody. Well, this is the interesting thing. Someone, I saw someone say, it was very appealing. Um, someone said the other day, it's none of my business what other people think of me. Yeah. But for us, it is our business. What other people think of us is our business. That's our, that is our, that's our entire job is to, you know, manage expectations, manage crowds. Yeah. That's so interesting you brought that up because that's always, that exact sentence has always been a mantra of mine in my life and getting into professional co- comedy has that's been a big struggle of mine is that it, that that sentence that I try to live my life by whilst being a good human like and but just being concerned with me knowing that I'm being a good human not not worrying too much about anyone else that is completely at odds with what we do yeah. and that's very hard to reconcile between your personal life and your public eye life yeah, and it, it, it is just a matter of economics at, at a certain point. You can decide that you don't want to do any of the social media stuff. That yeah. is totally available to you and it's a very appealing prospect, the idea of <laughs> just never, just deleting those apps, never looking again. Sure. But there's a cost to that. So it's whether we're willing to, you know, whether we have a, the, enough appetite for risk to continue to be public in that way in these environments which are becoming increasingly sort of uh, trigger fingery mm. and so far you know so far the 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 price has been worth paying because i haven't had to pay a particularly heavy price no nor have i i mean the situations i've just outlined to you weren't epic mm. at all they made me feel terrible about myself and i think 
the biggest price was just, you know, 72 hours of fear of not knowing how, how big it would be. But then, then because I had to be worried about what people were thinking in that instance, I also had to, like, flip it and really focus on the fact that a lot of people know who I truly am. Yeah. Well, this is uh, something I've been wrestling with recently was, is the idea that there is some art that is criminal which is to say things that incite violence against anyone, really. That's a, that's a criminal act, inciting violence. Um, but below that threshold, if something is nasty and unpleasant, a piece of art, you just don't like it. It's not overtly asking for violence. It's not overtly demonising anybody, but it's just got a set of attitudes that you don't like. It exists in the world. You're not required to engage with it. It's not compulsory. I feel like the act of making that art, however shitty and unpleasant it might be, is not as... I don't know if I stand by this, but it's not, it feels like it's not as morally wrong as trying to destroy somebody. Yeah. Like, yeah, I agree. And it's not just... You don't, it's not with, with this call-out culture... The urge is not just to correct someone, it's to ruin them. You know, you get doxxed, they, they pit, tell people your name or where you live or, you know, where they can find you. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's destructive. And, I mean, it, you know, attaching, attaching my name and my career to a, you know, a, that, that um, yeah, that call out, like that's exactly what it is. Like, you're all big fans of this person. Well, don't be. Yeah, I feel like the active malice of that... Is, is a real moral wrong, that it's being disguised under, under a blanket of moral righteousness and, and, and a kind of a purity element to it. Sure. That you feel like you're a warrior for justice. And we accept so much moral wrong from people who are on our side. Sure. Who we perceive to be on our side. Things that we would not accept if they came from the other side or if they came from a neutral party in a fight that we are not in. Sure. The idea of, you know, sending, sending people after someone's family, uh, threatening him in the street. I remember, was it Andrew Bolt who got punched in the head in the street? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was Andrew Bolt. Just not in the midst of a fight. Someone just came up to him and punched him in the head while he was at a cafe. yeah. And I thought, if somebody did that to any other kind of activist, a Greenpeace activist, say, if you just, you know, if you're a dolphin farmer and you kill dolphins for a living and this Greenpeace activist spends his whole time railing against your job and you see him in the street and just punch him in the head out of nowhere, like, it's the wrong thing to do. It is a moral wrong. Sure. No matter how awful it is, yeah, sure. That well, the things that he he's saying. Well, you raised a good point about how you can, you you don't have to engage with it, or you you don't have to engage with everything, mm. and it's a whole like scroll past on the internet stuff. Like you don't have to comment on everything. And do you know what? Am I correct in saying that I don't think I ever ever mentioned what the tweet actually was that I read a couple of days after the. Did I ever say it? No. Earlier on when we were talking about it and we got hung up on who wrote the tweet. I've, yeah, I forgot. I, d- I don't think that we said it. I don't think what I said it. But, it's all, but you've come back to that theme. Yeah. So the tweet was that everything on the internet doesn't have to be for you. 
Yeah. So she, and she went on to explain in subsequent tweets um, that what she meant is that you know she has she has a massive following, mm. but every now and then she'll write a tweet which is specifically for her African American fans. Yeah. And people of other um, ethnicities might not understand it. Or it might not be directed at them, so they don't need to chime in yeah. about the language that's used, or like needing an explanation or whatever. Like they can scroll past and know that that is not for them. Yeah. And I think that that's a big thing with the internet as well is that everybody assumes that everything, because it's a public platform, just by virtue of being public, it is for you because you are in the public. But it's also for you, and it's for you, and you, and you, and you, and you. Yeah. And, but we can't all understand everything that we see because they don't... Just because they're in a public forum doesn't mean that they're for our eyes. Yeah, I mean, that's just... I think that's just entitlement because you feel like it's for you because it's in your hand, literally. It's in, you know, the th- you're holding this whatever piece of information, joke, article in your hand. So you feel like you, you own it and you're entitled to it and you're entitled to an opinion on it because it's part of your day it's part of your life yeah you're holding it yeah so you can't just you have down access. and walk yeah. away yes that the access in itself allows for you to have some ownership over it yes yeah that's exactly right and i was talking about this with a friend recently because i was saying sometimes it winds me up on twitter when and, and let me finish because I know it sounds irrational. Yeah. <laughs> I do understand. <laughs> but I was saying how it winds me up, how every now and then I'll get into a bit of banter with one of my friends mm. on Twitter and just say it's someone who also has a public profile. So people in my followers list or her, her followers list know that we're both comedians and we're having a giggle or whatever and so they will get involved Mm. and it will annoy me because I'm like, but you can see from our tweets that we are personal friends. Yeah. But I also understand that it's a public forum. Yeah, you're essentially having a chat on stage. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right, which is... Which is what what we do. Yeah, we do do that. Like that's that's part of the tool of the of, of Twitter for us, isn't it? Like, if we got deep in that conversation, we'd switch it over to text message, right? Yeah, which is exactly what we did. We ended up at the end of it going, "Let's have a cup of tea next week." We didn't publish our addresses <laughs> to remind each other how to find us. Like, yeah. do, you know what I mean? Like, Come get a cup of tea with us. Yeah, yeah. Everyone in, in the Twitterverse. Like, that's exactly right. We, t- we took it to text to arrange the final details. But Flash mob with Kirsty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it could be a great marketing tool. But, um, yeah, but I started to really think about that kind of idea about how – and I mean, I I do it as well to some extent. Like, but but usually, like with two of my, if two of my mates were having a chat about something, and it was funny, and I actually thought I had something to say about it, and it was on Twitter, and it was out there, I would chime in. But I've very very rarely gotten involved in two strangers who just have a public profile that I've got no connection with. Yeah. Like, but this is the whole point, though. Like, it it's a public forum. Yeah. So don't do it. Like take it to text message if you don't want like Gary from the local Caltex chiming in about what he thinks of your friend's cats as well. Like, yes. You know? 
I mean, I don't know. What does he think of... I'm interested now in what Gary from the local Caltex thinks about your friend's cats. Does he have strong opinions? <laughs> Loves them. Loves them. Thinks they've got very big eyes, which is true. <laughs> <laughs> my, my brother uh, is sort of the opposite because he's not a comedian. He writes particularly on Facebook, in Facebook comments. He very, very rarely engages, but when he does, it's like these eight-paragraph-long dissertations. He's incredibly careful about what he says. Great. If you're listening to the podcast, you'll know exactly what I mean. He will, he'll break apart something and lay it all out and just take this incredibly rational line through it. Okay. Uh, and people don't really know what to make of it. Right. Because... It, you know, he's not providing an easy target. There was a really fascinating and deeply unsettling um, interview that was quite public recently with uh, Jordan Peterson. Do you know Jordan Peterson? Yeah, I do, yeah. So he's a, if you don't know him, he's a Canadian professor. He is a sort of self-help slash philosophy type dude. He provides this, um, you know, very appealing product to young men where he says masculinity is a virtue and these are the virtues of masculinity is something that modern society is ignoring and degrading by characterizing masculinity as toxic and here are the principles that you as a young man should value it's incredibly appealing if you feel alienated and lost and he's not telling anyone to do anything hateful he has some hateful followers who take that pro-masculinity stance as an anti-femininity stance. I don't think he ever directly says that. He could probably do a little bit more to address that, uh, that side of his fan base, because as it is, he's sort of feeding their own idea of the world. So he did an interview with a woman who was trying to gotcha him. She, she was interviewing him and she was saying, so you think this, and condensing his points down to the point where they were straw manning him, just creating these not quite accurate um, uh, Im impressions of what he had said or did. And he just was relentless in saying, no, that's not what I said. This is what I said. And she kept coming at him in this very simplistic way. Want she wanted to make it an emotional argument you, you don't like women. You don't think women are valuable. You don't think the pay gap exists. And he would say, well, no, that's not exactly what I said. What I said is it's a much more complicated set of inputs and, and that the, you know, other things contribute to the pay gap than purely gender discrimination. It, w it was a really interesting conversation because it was embarrassing for the lady who was interviewing him. Sure. Even though I probably agree with her principles more than I agree with his he just like and it was so the reason I found it so embarrassing to watch was because I thought there are people who are watching this who will walk away feeling less confident in their in their own position there'll be people who we lose from the side of progressive compassionate thought because sure. this woman is making a fool of herself. Yeah, okay. He was out arguing her on every front. And she just didn't have the statistics to back her claims. Yeah. You know, when he said, 
for, you know, for example, the pay gap is exaggerated. There are other things that feed into it than pure gender discrimination. There are very few bosses going, you're a woman, I will pay you less. Yeah. But, I mean, that's true. There are that's very, very true. Bosses. Yeah. What happens is that women tend to make certain choices and they choose certain careers that are valued less than men. There's a counter argument to that, which is why do we value these jobs less than jobs done by men? Is it purely because they contribute less to the economy? They might contribute less in a direct way. Things like childcare contribute less in a direct way to the economy because children aren't worth money, but they're also doing incredible things for the economy long term. Yeah, yep, sure. And if you have good childcare, you have good citizens 20 years from now, and that is incalculably worthwhile. So why are these women being paid less than men just because the end of the year bar chart doesn't reflect the value that they're putting into society? Yeah. That is a good counter argument to the argument that there's no boss who says, well, I should be paying my women less. Yeah, sure. But she wasn't making that counter argument. She was saying, so you're saying women are less valuable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it made her look like an idiot. Okay. And I, it was it just infuriated me because I felt so I felt so frustrated mm. by that, and I felt like there are you know there are people who can see the injustices that are being perpetrated by the left within the left, who are getting alienated to the point where they're embracing other ideologies that seem more rational, but are long term deeply troubling. For yeah. the way we are as humans. Yeah. You know, there's a difference between rational and reasonable. Sure. You know, the Nazis were rational. Mm. They just had false premises. Mm. Like, if you believe that Jews are not human, it all follows logically from there. Yeah. But their, their fundamental premise is flawed. Yeah, sure. All of the arguments built on top, great, fine. Yeah. But you can't, you know, you can't just argue about that from emotion. You can't just say Jews are human because Jews are human. Like, I'm a Jew. I feel human. I'm well, yeah. half Jew. I feel at least half human. You, know? <laughs> you strike me as a full human. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I think there is an argument to be made for emotion, but it can't be the whole game. No, it can't. Like I was saying before, your reaction is important because it tells you something, Mm. but the guy could just be straightening his cuff. you got to take... Yeah. It's it's a really good lesson in um, remembering that you're, you're only ever seeing the tip of the iceberg, though, isn't it? Yeah. And... I know for a fact that um, the, the situations we spoke about today, for me, the major takeaway was to remember that I'm, I'm seeing at any given time, particularly on the internet, but even just in reality, I'm always only seeing like 10% of the whole story. Yeah. You know, and it's, ma- it's made me infinitely kinder and more patient, like just immediately. Really, having been on the receiving end of this. Oh, absolutely. It's also made me um, really staunch about denouncing call-out culture. I mean, it's interesting. I was going to ask what you took away from it. Yeah. Well, th- well, that. I mean, I've I've been recently tagged in some call-outs, like uh, you know, a- as being called to the front line to pile on. Yeah. 
um, on social media, uh, yeah, I've been made aware of some different things that have come up and I've responded by literally saying I am disenfranchised with call-out culture. I'm not into it at all anymore, so... Well, it was a good experiment, right? A very good experiment. And Can we change the world by telling people that they're doing the wrong thing? Yeah, do you know, like, there's there's a lot to be said for call-in culture, I think. But, I mean, the initial person that, um, that, that called me out on Twitter, they went on to say... Because I wrote a tweet saying that if they had, you know, like DM'd me and explained their case or something, I think that I would have reacted better. But I was nervous about the public nature of it and the potential for an ensuing pile-on. And they responded to that saying that they'd witnessed me call out people on numerous occasions Yeah. on Twitter. And I did one time I called out a journalist on Twitter. I can't remember what he said, but I had a go at him and then we instantly took it into the DMs and within 15 minutes we became fast friends and we are literally mates now. Yeah. And other than him, I have gone after Miranda Devine and Mark Latham. Yeah. <laughs> like people that are intentionally antagonistic as their brand, like within their, their careers – um, Corey Bernardi during the postal survey. I haven't gone after uh, some indie comedian who has sort of tr- been trying to make a gag on Twitter, right? And I think that's. Th- I think they're different animals as well. Well, yeah, yeah. I think they are different animals. I think also, like the thing. I, this is a theme through my show this year, so maybe I'm seeing it everywhere. But now, uh, the thing that the internet has made me realise is it doesn't matter what you say. It matters who you are and how you say it. Sure. How you position yourself in relation to the person that you are talking to, who they are compared to who you are. Yeah. And how you say it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've told this story before. I was walking down the street and a car nearly took me out. And I was with a friend. And he smacked the car on the hood and said, watch where you're driving. And you could see in the woman's eyes that she was shocked, that she'd, you know, she realised she'd done the wrong thing, that she, you know, was processing this moment of her own negligence. And then he went, you bitch. And she shut down. You could see it, it went from, oh, no, I've done something wrong. I'm, in, I'm a bit shocked at my own negligence. There's a lesson to be learned here to that guy's an asshole. I'm yeah. going on. And of course, you know, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter, but it does. And it depends on whether you want the satisfaction of calling that person a bitch or because they're a bitch or if you want to actually change something. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So that's right. The, and, sorry, go on. The promise of the internet was that with all the information in the world, we would all find things in common, right? With access to everything. And the reality is it's gotten narrower and narrower because now you can find anything, the only thing you trust is where it's coming from. Yes. Who it's coming from, how it's positioned in relation to you. Sure. Hmm. The ethos. The ethos. The ethos. <laughs> Wait up, where do I know that from? <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying before while I was blithering? 
Um, I forgot to bookmark it actually. I can't. Yeah, I can't remember. I can't Talking remember what it car, was going to be. The smacking of the car. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't remember the exact point. It was it was going to be along the lines of that whole defensive thing though. Like, I've never I've never felt so defensive in my life as when as when I you know got that tweet back. Like, it, like it annoyed me because and, the, and not the tweet in itself. It was it was fine. Like they they weren't um, they weren't like it wasn't a, a particularly inflammatory response to my tweet. But like I said, it was just the perfect conditions because I just watched a bunch of pylons over that previous week, and um, and yeah, just fatigue in my in my inbox as well. Just you know, people p- picking apart every single thing that I say all the time, and it's like just have a laugh. Like I'm very very mindful of jokes that I make. I always have been. I'm known for it. Like I'll look at a joke and I'll look at it from every angle, and I'll try and work out. If it's classist in any way, sexist, ableist, like a- anything, I'll, as I, as I'm learning and growing, like I'll I'll take words out of my vocabulary and words out of jokes that I didn't realise could be perceived in a certain way, you know. As I, as I'm learning, like I'm I'm really conscious of um, not upsetting people or alienating people from my comedy, but I just um, in that in that time I just felt re- like I was just being constantly attacked. Yeah. And, um, well, you, you attack your allies more than you attack your enemies these days. Well, that's exactly right. It's, it's, uh, we, we really look out to see who is a bad ally or who is a bad member of our own community, you know, like who's being a bad gay or who's being a bad ally because it's so much easier to take those people down than it is to um, access the people who truly are what you're accusing those other people of being. Yeah, well, you tell Miranda Devine she's a turf, and she'll be yeah. like, yep. Good. And and how, and how is that going to make you feel good about yourself? No. But, like, you can claim the scalp of someone who you know actually has a conscience yeah. and who actually will care about being called that. So you can claim their scalp and you can publicly name and shame them and tell everybody that they're not who they claim to be. But you actually know that they are that person as well. You deep down know that they are that person and they'll be affected by being accused of being something that they stand against. Yeah. I mean, it's also the, the, the anonymising nature of the internet. Like, have you ever ordered an Uber? Or, I mean, Uber is a problematic com- company, uh, another kind of... Another kind of internet service, like a food delivery service, sure. has a tracking app. Okay, sure, yeah. And you see them coming to your place. You can see the little the little figurine on a bike coming towards your yeah. house, and they pass by your street, and they go down the wrong way, and they're going down a one way street, and it goes from being three minutes away to being ten minutes. Yeah, away. yeah. You could drop an anvil on that person, like you just yeah. You're furious with them yeah you're like what are you some sort of idiot you just come here like and you're waiting outside and it's cold and you're waiting for your food and you can see this little figurine and the moment they come you're like oh man hi you know you're yeah. a human being god you must be exhausted yeah imagine that was stressful for you it Im- that your rage evaporates immediately yeah that's so true because oh you're so good at human. similes <laughs> I mean, that's less a simile than a thing that actually happens. But, yes, but it is like that. It is. It is that. It's that feeling. It's, it's yeah. It is at a hundred percent. And it's like, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, have had examples of people being really, um, 
We all have. Like being really aggressive or really ang- disproportionately angry about something over text or in the inbox or whatever. And then the second you see them, um, you know, either to have a further conversation or you've semi-resolved it or whatever, like they just completely melt in front of you because you're there in your personification and like, you know, if it's a friend or whatever, like the second that they clap eyes on you, they remember that they love you. Yeah. And they remember that you're not the demon that they made you out to be when you misworded a text message to them on Thursday, you know? Yeah. And that's it. It's exactly right. It's so... The, those screens just really put, like, mountains between us, don't they? Like... Yeah, We hugely. dehumanise each other. And it's the whole keyboard warrior thing. Like, I just sit at home and just hurl abuse at strangers on the internet all day because well, I don't care. They don't know who I am. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. Mm. Why would you take it seriously? It's just a tweet. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like... you and, and we... Like, we try not to. We really try not to. And, you know, just in general, like, just... Um, you know, diminishing it in knowing that they're just a, you know, a keyboard warrior in their mum's basement or whatever. Yeah. But also just in terms of like the whole, you know, what what someone else thinks of me isn't isn't any of my business. But it still wears you down. I mean, even subconsciously when you have to read stuff like that, like even if you're stoic on the face of it, you, um, like your brain has to hear the information still. Yeah, you have to process it. It's almost impossible. I mean, I tell my management not to send me reviews unless they're, like, really good reviews during the festival. Yeah, sure. Particularly early on in the run because at that point I know all the mistakes that I'm making. And yeah, it's sure. And a matter of getting through that period. Mm-hmm. Like, I can see what's wrong with the show. It's fine. I'm fixing it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I had a friend be like, oh, I saw a bad review of you the other day and I had to find it. Oh, did, is it, did this happen recently? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I just had to find it and read it. And I was okay. lucky because it was not just a bad review, but it was also a bad review. Like, I didn't feel like they had excoriated me or really touched anything about the show that would make me feel bad. So oh, right. So it was a, a, bit a, of a wishy-washy, relief. so, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's almost impossible to sort of disconnect from that. It's really hard. It's, what we do is very personal. The work that we do is very personal. We create stuff from nothing out of our brains. Yeah. And... You know, as much as you try and um, isolate it and decompartmentalise and, like, this is my work and this is me as a human, they're your babies that you have produced from what's going on inside you. Yeah, how many do you like me out of five? Yeah. That's what you feel like. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's completely different. It's about the jokes, it's about the room, it's about the work. Yeah, of course. It's also you. It is. It's a big part of you. And, and just so much, so much in our industry is um, based on quantifiable numbers and things um, that it, you have to find a way to take a step back from it. I mean, I look at social media followers. Like, a lot of the big gigs that we get booked for around town, that's something that they look at. Yeah. And, and you know, um, comedians, like, early in their career or who are trying to, like, get out of being an open mic comic into being a booked, like, working comic – they are fully aware that people look at how many social media followers they are and things and they obsess over one or two people unfollowing their page or not growing in numbers each week or whatever. And at the end of the day, I mean, my social media followings are fine. Are they buying tickets to my shows? Nah, not really. <laughs> not really because no, if they were... Tweeting. Yeah, yeah. If they were, if everybody on my social medias had... Um, had bought a ticket to my show uh, recently, all, all my runs would be sold out, you know. 
and that's the thing is that it's not it's not um, there's there's no great link between your social media followers and who's actually attending your shows. Like a lot of people do, but the majority don't. And um, it, but it is something that people look at. Like people in the industry have a look at that. Yeah. And then your, your reviews, how many stars are you getting, you know? Yeah. How many how bums many on seats do you have tonight? Yeah. Exactly. exactly. How many do you like me out of 40 or 60 or 200? Yeah. Forget about the stars, but how many actual reviews have you had? Yeah. You know, um, how many awards have you won? How many judges? Like everything's just counting up these quantifiable numbers of things that don't actually matter that much if you're making art and you're making shows that you love and you're doing what you love and you're making people laugh if that's your jam I mean I am genuinely a comedian who just enjoys making people laugh yeah I prefer to make people cry so (laughs) well you're very good I came to your show last night and I sobbed myself to sleep thank you absolutely didn't it was (laughs) it's a blatant lie as well it was joyful I thoroughly enjoyed your show it is just an hour of me calling Kirsty a dickhead (laughs) you got me up on stage and called me a turf yeah real personal For sure. But, I mean, you know, that's the stuff that really matters and that's that's what I always try and remember as well, especially now as we're going into the festivals, is what do you love about this? You love standing up on stage and seeing that your hard work is making people laugh, which is what you want to be doing. You just want to be making people laugh. I My favourite thing, I have two favourite things. Uh, one is when people come up to me after a show and say, like, I listened to your podcast, I thought you were taller. <laughs> You do sound very tall I on a podcast. I do sound very tall. Uh, I assume it's some sort of inherent idea of my stature, so I find it a very good compliment. Yeah. And the other one is, oh, you made me think about something or you changed my mind about something. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's exactly the kind of comic you are, which is great. Yeah. It's real, like I wish I had those skills and maybe one day I will, but I don't currently. And so I'm satisfied making people laugh, but I do thoroughly envy very intelligent people who can translate that into a humorous show that is palatable and accessible yeah, and but challenges people's I do thinking. I just want to fall down. Like, I just want to fall down for an hour and have people laugh. <laughs> Maybe that's my next show, Slapstick well, yeah, well, I can help you with that. Oh, good. We do make a good team. Yeah, we do. Where can people find you online, Kirsty? Okay, so I'm on uh, – if you're going to find me on online, please be kind. I'm on um, Facebook, Insta and Twitter um, as Kirsty Wiebeck, uh, W-E-B for Bravo, E-C-K. I'm across all the platforms. Website's the same. All my shows are up there. She's all over it. Uh, look her up. Send her a nice tweet. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're having tea with Alice.
Oh, do you know, oh, do you not? This top is mistress we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doppers at every frame. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you doppers, cry up your ends. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie our ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day.